let me pray. Father, thank you for this time to look at your word now. Please would you speak to us and encourage us by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 94, verse 1, O Lord, the God who avenges. Uh, to many ears in the year 2020, an avenger is somebody who's dressed in a superhero costume. Part human, part machine maybe, Earth's mightiest heroes who stand in the planet's first line of defence against the most powerful threats in the universe. Avengers, assemble and bring your greatest strength and your best one-liner quips to save the universe yet again and bring in another three billion dollars for Marvel Studios while you do it, please. If it's not that, it might just be the, the 1960s TV series that comes to mind. This is well before I was born, let's be clear, but I know one or two might uh, remember that. But either way, the idea that God is one who avenges takes us to a rather different place. Do we really want to talk about or believe in an avenging God? in 2020. Isn't this really just more fodder for the new atheists and those who are determined to see Christianity not as a force for good in the world, but as a source of harm, of evil? This is where believing in God gets you, they would say, the idea of vengeance. And anyway, Christian, didn't Jesus say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, why can't God practice what he preaches? And can Christians really read and, and even sing psalms that contain verses like verse 2? Rise up, O judge of the earth, pay back to the proud what they deserve. Now, these are good questions, and, and they're real and they're important, for, but, but from, from the outset... It's worth noting that it feels rather different discussing the idea of a vengeful God in the relatively peaceful West, where a pandemic is the first global catastrophe, maybe since, I don't know, the Second World War or something like that. But it, it might just feel slightly different if you were reading this in Plateau State, in the middle band of Nigeria. Nigeria is number 12 on the world watch list of countries where Christians are persecuted. And of course, it's very different in the south compared to the north in that country. But it is at the top of the list of countries where Christians are murdered because of their faith. Now, Open Doors tells the story of Rose, whose pastor husband, Matthew, was killed by Fulani militants in April this year. He was out on patrol with his church secretary seeking to protect their village from militants, and he was killed. Since then, Rose has had to deal not just with bereavement, but with COVID-19 and the resulting poverty from being unable to work. And Christians are often last in line when government food and aid is distributed. How would Christians like Rose feel in that situation? It would be easy to feel that God is letting wicked people get away with gross injustice and evil, and that he's forgotten his own people. 
In situations like that, do we not want to know, do we not need to know that there is a God of justice? Psalms like Psalm 94 are called imprecatory psalms. In the imprecatory psalms, the psalmist sees injustice around and cries out, God, this is not fair. The wicked are getting away with their wickedness. Your people are suffering at their hands. Will you not act? Will you not bring your just and fair and right judgment on those who deserve it and rescue your people who are suffering? Now, it's helpful from the start to be clear that the New Testament perspective on this isn't actually different. This is a prayer for God to act in the face of injustice. This isn't a battle cry for God's people to rise up and judge their enemies themselves. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. So actually, it's entirely consistent for Jesus to say, love your enemies. In other words, don't retaliate yourself when you're hurt. But even as we do that, we can still pray for justice. And we heard that in the second reading from Romans. We heard Paul in that extraordinary description of love. It's a beautiful description, isn't it? Of the way that we put others before ourselves. We bless and do not curse. We overcome evil with good. But, he says, do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says God. Do you see, the whole reason that Christians, you know, God's people, can live a life of forgiveness and not retaliating when we are hurt ourselves, and you know, we don't need to get our own back, is because we believe in a God of justice who will put everything right in the end. Otherwise, it would just be sweeping everything under the carpet and saying, oh, no, no, it doesn't matter that this dreadful evil has been done. No, 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 it matters. It matters to God. It will be dealt with so we can trust him. See, we we may have very negative feelings about the idea of of God's judgment, of, of the idea of an angry God, even a God of wrath, as the Bible speaks about him. But we, we, we mustn't get confused. You see, when we, the, the danger is that when we hear those kind of words and descriptions, we immediately think of bad human examples of those characteristics. So we think of sinful, self-centered, fly-off-the-handle human anger that's been done to us in our lives, or, or indeed that we know in our own hearts is true of the way we treat others sometimes. But we need to know God is not like that. But he is the one who will ensure that justice is done. For Rose in Nigeria, justice is a right thing. But it must be done by the one that we can trust to do it absolutely rightly and justly and fairly. We don't need to take it in our hands now. Leave it to God. But, so, what then do you do if you are rose in central Nigeria? Or you're a Christian in a North Korean labour camp? Or you're in London and you're hearing about people who really are suffering for their faith around the world? Brothers and sisters, in situations very different from ours, how do you respond? Well, you cry out 
to the God who avenges. That is what this psalm is about. It's, it, it stands out among these psalms, you know, 90 to 95, that we're looking at over the summer, the beginning of this so-called fourth book of psalms. And as a whole, they focus on what it means for God to be our creator king. But this one, this Psalm 94, is a little bit different in tone as it focuses on the avenging judgment of our creator king. What does it mean to trust in a God who will ensure that justice is done? So we're going to look at this psalm in three main sections that give us the reasons we can trust God in the face of injustice, trust him to avenge. Here's the first thing from verses 3 to 11 after verses 1 and 2 kind of set the scene as we've seen. From verses 3 to 11, God sees what we can't see. God sees what we can't see. So the psalmist begins by telling God what he can see. What I see, God, is the wicked being jubilant, being happy, verse 3. They are arrogant. They boast about how easily they get away with their wickedness. They, they crush your people, Lord. Like someone might say today, you know, Lord, what was going on when those ISIS terrorists executed those Christians? They're being slain and murdered, he says here, verse 6. And worst of all, they say... Don't talk to us about God. He's not interested. He doesn't see what we're doing. We're just going to get away with it. And the psalmist fears that this might be true. Where is your God now? Do you feel any sympathy with that? When you hear of evil apparently winning, when God's people suffer or die too young or whatever it might be. But then comes God's response. The God of Jacob takes no notice, does he? No, you take notice, verse 8. You senseless ones among the people. This is actually rebuking God's people now for being taken in by the rhetoric of their oppressors. Don't listen to them when they boast about what they can see and hear. We can't see any God, they say. We can't hear him. He's not there. No, let me tell you something about sight and hearing, says God. About your eyes and your ears. Let me tell you about those. I made them. I invented them. I am the creator. I made the eye that you are looking out of when you claim you cannot see me. Do you see? So it's like standing outside in the garden on a cloudy day and kind of confidently proclaiming, I can see the trees and I can see the grass and I can't see any sun. Therefore, the sun does not exist. Well, it's ridiculous, isn't it? The whole reason you can, when you go out in the garden, you can see anything at all is because the sun is shining. And, and actually just because a tiny, tiny fraction of the light emitted by that massive ball of fire in space, 93 million miles away, a tiny, tiny fraction of that has gone through all those clouds and has reached your garden, enabling you to see what you can see. Don't be fooled. Don't be an idiot. You need to know, verse 11, the Lord is God. He made you and he knows all human plans. He knows they're futile. Appearances aren't everything. The fact that the wicked appear to be getting away with it here and now is not the whole story. He sees what we can't see. Now, uh, near the river in Durham, 
right up the top of England. There's an art installation by the side of the river. At least, at least there was about 20 years ago. It was the last time I went there. This art installation was there. I don't know if it's there now. But if, you, if it's still there, you can go and you can look at it. And what you will see is a bunch of tree trunks with bits carved out of them. You know, it's all a bit odd. There's a bit of someone's foot here on this tree and there's an ear over here on this tree. And if you just look at it like that, you will easily conclude, you know, this is not worth bothering with. I'm off to test my eyes on a car ride to Barnard Castle or whatever it might be. But not so fast. What you need to do is you need to find the nearby seat. And if you sit in that particular seat, suddenly what looks from every other angle like a bunch of random trees turns into a beautiful sculpture of the Last Supper. It all lines up. From that angle and perspective, the carvings on the individual trees all join together and they make sense. When it comes to Christians being persecuted and evil people getting away with evil and God's people suffering, it's as if we're up close with the tree trunks going, I don't get this, this is, I just see this little bit here and I don't, I don't get how this fits with anything else. But God is in the seat that matters. He sees what we can't see. His plans are beyond our understanding. We won't always be able to discern exactly what he's doing and why he's doing it and why he's allowing his people to suffer and why he's allowing the wicked to get away with it for the time being. But why do we assume that we created people are seeing the whole picture? Only God has got that. So trust him. That is the first thing that we see in these verses. But then there's more. God sees what we can't see. Then secondly, from verses 12 to 15, God acts in love in ways that we can't always understand. God acts in love in ways that we can't always understand. That the, the focus shifts from the evildoer who seems to get away with it to God's people themselves who on the face of it often seem to suffer. How is that fair? Understand, says the psalmist, that God uses the tough times and the suffering and the persecution that his people experience to discipline those he loves. Can you see that? Verse 12, blessed is the one you discipline. Now, do you believe that? How could suffering ever possibly be a good thing for God's people? Well, maybe it might help us to realise what really matters in our lives. It, it will help us to cling on to God more than we were doing before because we have nowhere else to turn. If it does that, it's preparing us for eternity. Because what is eternal life according to Jesus? John 17 verse 3, it is knowing God. And so he says, you grant them relief from days of trouble. Now, hang on, is that, is that actually right? How, how can he say that whilst, while he is actually suffering and watching the wicked get away with evil? How can he say, and you grant relief in the day of trouble? Is that just sort of uh, a, a vague hope? Well, if you, if you trace that phrase, the day of trouble, through the Old Testament you'll see that relief in the day of trouble could come through the trouble being removed, but it can also come simply as God's people take refuge in him and find relief in him, even as the trouble, whatever it is, continues. Now, there's a famous series of photographs of this lighthouse that I put on the screen. 
at uh, La Jumont off the coast of Brittany. And a helicopter went out to take photographs of this lighthouse in a huge storm. And that's, that's one of the photos that he took. Uh, the lighthouse keeper uh, then heard the helicopter approaching in the storm and he went down to have a look and see what was going on. So if we go to the next picture, you then get this. So do you see this little chap standing at the door, hands in his pockets, while this massive swell comes up around the lighthouse behind him? And the, and the photographer caught that precise moment. Within seconds of that photograph being taken, the, the lighthouse keeper realised what was going on. He shut the front door, he legged it upstairs, and he just avoided being washed away through the ground floor with all the furniture as the waves crashed through the windows. But upstairs, at least, in the lighthouse, he was safe in this extraordinary huge storm. The storm carried on, but he had refuge. Even in the day of trouble, God's people can take comfort in the Lord, who, verse 14, will not reject his people and will never forsake his inheritance. Don't miss that word comfort. The, the, the US church leader, Matt Chandler, is, is another pastor who has suffered. He, he, he commented that comfort is the God of our generation. And so suffering is seen as a problem to be solved and not a providence from God. Comfort is the God of our generation. So suffering is seen as a problem to be solved, not a providence from God. Does that, does that kind of ring true? You see, even through the tears, which will be real when the pain is real, we can pray that God will help us to cling to Jesus, to be more like him, to know him and his goodness more and more. That is the true comfort that we're so often looking for elsewhere because it's the God of our generation and we go we just think oh if I get this I'll be okay no no find that in the God who made you find that in the God who saved you because you're not going to find it elsewhere true comfort is in him now sometimes that's really hard to pray and believe when we're in the thick of it, when you're in that lighthouse in the middle of the storm. Really hard to believe that this storm is not actually going to destroy you as you take refuge in God. But that is why we need one another. Really hard to do that by yourself. So if you know somebody who is suffering, whether we're talking about us here and now in London, or we're talking about brothers and sisters around the world as we support, and we support open doors because of that, because we know Christians don't always live in peace and are persecuted. Well, what can we do? What can we pray with them and for them? We don't just pray that God would take away the trouble, though that's not a bad thing to pray, but don't just pray that. Pray that God would use that trouble to help them take refuge in him and find comfort in him and find life in him. That is just part of what God is doing by allowing his people to suffer while it seems evil people are getting away with it, as it were. Part of it is to discipline us in advance. And we began to see a little bit of this in 1 Peter 
in the series that we've just done, to discipline us in advance so that we are ready for eternity with him. Because we know if you've got him, you've got all that matters. So he sees what we can't see. He acts in love in ways that we can't always understand. And then finally, the psalmist turns in verses 16 to 23 to this. He says, God will judge. So take refuge in him. God will judge. So take refuge in him. There's a contrast here. As the psalm ends in verses 22 and 23, the Lord has become my fortress and my God the rock in whom I take refuge, but he will repay them for their sins and destroy them for their wickedness. The Lord our God will destroy them. It's quite a note to end on, isn't it? As the psalm comes to a close. Now remember, if you find yourself turning to imprecatory psalms, you know, when you've been cut up in traffic or somebody else has finished all the ice cream, or even that, you know, the government in a peaceful country like ours are, you know, um, asking things, us to do things as a church in particular ways that we may not particularly want to do. No, that, that, this isn't about that. This is about the Christian in prison in North Korea. It's about Rose mourning her husband's death at the hands of militants in Nigeria. And it may be for us ourselves, for situations that we may face at other times and in other places or even here in this country in the future. We know we're not there now, but we want to stand with brothers and sisters who are in those situations around the world. We need to know there is a God of justice, that these things are not unnoticed that there is a God who sees, who will ensure justice is done. But look what he says before he gets to that final ending, as he lands on judgment and leaves it there. What does he say before that? Verse 16, he says, Who will rise up for me against the wicked? Who will take a stand for me against evildoers? Suffering often feels utterly lonely, as if the world has moved on and, and forgotten you and is abusing you. But the psalmist knew in shadow, and we know for certain that God's commitment to putting an end to evil isn't just theoretical. It's not just words about the future. He stepped into history to rise up against the wicked. He stepped into history to take a stand against evil, and he did that by bearing evil and its consequences and its punishment on his own shoulders as a man on the cross. Elie Wiesel was a Jewish survivor of the Holocaust who, despite not being a Christian himself, came to understand something profound about how in suffering God may be closer to us than we could possibly imagine. In his account of his time in Auschwitz, he he tells how a young boy was punished by the guards for stealing food. He was hanged on piano wire while all the other prisoners were forced to watch. And then he wrote this this account. He said, for more than half an hour, the boy stayed there, struggling between life and death, dying in agony before our eyes. We were all forced to pass in front of him, but not allowed to look down or avert our eyes on pain of being hanged ourselves. When I passed in front of him, the the, the child was staring at me, but behind me, a man muttered, Where is your God now? And I heard a voice within me answer him, Where is he? 
Here he is. He's hanging here on this gallows. Now, whether wittingly or not, V. Saul had hit on a key aspect of what it meant for Jesus to die on the cross. He bore our punishment. He bore the consequences of injustice and evil. However much we might struggle with this idea of God as the one who avenges evil, who is the avenger, who brings judgment and justice, we know that he stepped into history to endure that on himself so that when we trust in him, we don't need to receive what we deserve. So then we can say to the psalmist who cries out, who will rise up for me, who will take a stand for me, we can say, God has in Christ, even in the face of suffering and injustice. So we can testify with the psalmist that while it may feel like our feet are slipping and our anxiety is getting the better of us, we can take refuge in God's unfailing love, in his consolation and find joy. So to the suffering Christian and to the evildoer, Psalm 94 says, there is a God of justice. Take refuge in him, run to him, trust in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this psalm. We need to hear, for the sake of our brothers and sisters suffering around the world, and for ourselves too in our own lives. May we pray this with those who are suffering, injustice and evil. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. We look forward to the day when Jesus returns, when we can know that justice will finally and fairly be done. And yet we know that to endure that day, we ourselves must take refuge in your son, in Jesus, who died that death on the cross. So we come to him and trust in him today. Amen.